Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Klain. It is said that the apple does not fall far from the tree. <laughs> but if you really want to know what you're going to turn out like as an adult, don't only look to your parents. Obviously, they have some say in that or what you in social learning sort of dimensions acquired from your childhood only from your parents or the significant others that are in that position of giving you guidance and leading and direction. Actually, look to your siblings. <laughs> because what you learn with them, as much also your cohort, your peers, probably speaks in more long-term consequence or aspect to what you will be as an adult than anything that your parents could singularly do. After all, who do you spend the majority of your time with? Psychology Today, November, December of 2023. Why your childhood sibling dynamic can reemerge in your adult relationships. By Karen Gail Lewis. LMFT, Licensed Marriage Family Therapist. She is a family therapist and the author of Sibling Therapy, The Ghosts from Childhood That Haunt Your Clients' Love and Work. After 10 years of marriage, Mika and Nilu sought therapy. It was their third attempt to save a relationship both said they had no intention of leaving. Their most recent battle was about Mika using marijuana in the house. Nilu said she was okay with Mika's smoking, but also repeatedly asked, Do you really want your kids to see this? Only to have Mika respond, You always try to control me. You can't tell me what to do. Their previous couple therapy experiences had focused on similar control issues. But since they had largely un- been largely unsuccessful, there seemed no point in repeating what had already been tried. Instead, I decided to look for a sibling transference in the relationship. Early childhood is our first experience of living intimately with peers. People on the same hierarchical level and of the same generation. To understand the influences of the early sibling dynamic, both subtle and overt, on adult relationships, let's think about what young children learn from their siblings. In the first six to ten years of life, children learn or don't learn skills for fighting and resolving fights, for competing and saving face. They learn or don't learn when to exert their power and when to withdraw. And when there is a physical power imbalance, they learn how to draw on other skills such as humor, manipulation, paddling, and blackmail. Later, as adults, when in conflict with a loved one, they can, without conscious awareness, transfer what they learned in childhood. This transference can be triggered by as little as someone's look or facial expression. For example, 
A woman might experience an expression made by a partner, friend, or boss as affectionate, reminding her of her warm feelings she once held for a sibling. How erroneous can transference be? Well, perhaps the expression she saw as affection was the other person stifling a gas pain. Or, influenced by a negative relationship with a sibling, she might react to the same look, generated by gas, as if she were being regarded as stupid. Or, the same look might make her fear feel fearful. I work with Mika and Nilu on exploring their early sibling relationships. I ask each if they'd had, if they'd ever had the same feelings when they were little. Mika immediately replied, My big brother was a goody two-shoes. He was always telling me what I could or couldn't do. I pointed out she had made the same complaint in almost the same words about Nilu. Nilu's sister was developmentally disabled. And she grew up constantly hearing it was my job to take care of her. So while Mika's experience had been fighting a control battle with her brother, Nilu's was always feeling responsible for a less fortunate sibling. Each appeared to have transferred those childhood experiences to their marriage. If we hadn't talked about these early sibling relationships, they might never have discovered the roots of their conflict pattern. As with many other clients, even when these partners were able to see and understand how they recreated these patterns, they struggled to break them. Therapists can help people listen for clues to a sibling transference. When they use the same words about a sibling as they do a partner, or when they find themselves quickly overreacting in a conflict. Sometimes I or a client will suggest meeting with a sibling to resolve old hurts or resentments. But even without that step, clients can learn to notice when they are reacting in a relationship as they did in their so-called hypothetical with parentheses around it, first marriage and with work. Move past those reflexive responses and chart a fresh path together. Again, why your childhood sibling dynamic can reemerge in your adult relationships by Karen Gale Lewis, licensed marriage family therapist. She is a family therapist and the author of Sibling Therapy, The Ghosts from Childhood That Haunt Your Clients, Love and Work, Psychology Today, November, December of 2023. Now, none of us would probably want to admit too strongly to the fact that we really are never our own person. Why? Because about the same time we were discovering who we are, somebody else had already been there. And with that, had already told us who we were. And we call that socialization. Social learning. It is not only our identity in totality, but all the small parts along the way 
that kind of get hung on that name that they give us that goes along with their identity. And so when we claim our identity, we claim one that probably isn't totally our own. That explains, I believe, in pretty basic terms why most people also go through a stage of rejection of what you've called me or made me to be. I want to be my own person. But in the end, they're never really their own person. Somebody else has already been there, again, put the flag in and claimed it for themselves. They were the first to discover you. They were the first to define you. They were the first to call you who you are. I know we don't like that notion. There's all sorts of levels that we don't like that notion, not only individually but socially. But you can't separate yourself from that because it's always been there from the very beginning when the first person or persons who were capable of seeing or understanding or comprehending or conceptualizing in this sort of way began to define everything. You can't separate yourself totally from that. It's insidious. What you can do, though, is recognize it and admit some of those things that you learned in childhood were not all bad, could be good. Some parents do better than others, even sibling birth order. Alfred Adler said, had a lot to say or a lot to do with how we perceive ourselves. He was the first to come up with the notion of an inferiority complex. He was the originator of that. And what does that mean? If you're a firstborn, it's a little different than being second. And if you're a middle child and there should be a third, it's a little different than being the youngest. And if you have more than three, it gets really complicated. Uh, but the patterns aren't really all that, you know, I guess, numerous. The possibilities, uh, there's always intricacy and complication. But for the most part, if somebody else has already been there, it leaves you little space to be an individual. But so too, then, <laughs> as you replicate that with your own family, and that begins with dating relationships, or actually, as the article pointed out, all of those things you learn from your siblings and your cohort, your peers, in the way then of choices, in the way then of pronouncing your individuality separate from what your parents, whom aren't there all the time, <laughs> would be probably aghast at some of the things that you've thought and done. Your exploration and discovery and actualization and validation of who you are uniquely, albeit again, not only socially, somebody's already claimed you, but genetically, you come from the same gene pool. You're going to experiment, however, most likely, if you can be an individual unique from your family, that's where it's going to happen. There's social influence there. Obviously, there's not genetics, except that your primary social peer group would not only be your siblings, but maybe your extended family, as with cousins and such. But if there's enough diversity in those early experiences, you get a lot of practice. You get 
flavored by other people's social learning. How they contend with, as the article pointed out, disagreements and conflicts as they learn to collaborate, as they work together, as they then accept that there is a hierarchical pattern to all social order. You can't completely destroy it or eradicate it. It is always there, even if it's only then shadowy. It's always there. And then you're going to recreate a new one because we don't live, we don't exist well without some degree of order. And even as the article sort of got into, it could be all power-based with that physicality and abuse dimension, control, dominance, submission, but we don't like that. (laughs) We rather would have it to, again, have some higher-ordered psychological dimension to the order, and with that, the possibility of a higher-ordered, hierarchical system, social system, then simply kill or be killed. Uh, Darwinian uh, survival of the fittest. That's what hopefully makes humans a bit different than animals, although we're learning, comparative animal psychology has shown us, (laughs) the study of that field, that there's a lot of social order to animals. Insects included, and possibly if plants could talk (laughs) or there was much more that they could do in this social order sort of way, we might even see it with them. It is possibly something of natural order, but higher than simply kill or be killed. But don't let your experiences in life, including those with bullies, including those with maybe abusive parents, neglectful parenting, define you. That's what psychology is all about. Though it's hard to make changes, you can. Mecca or Mika and Nilu were learning. (laughs) One, an awareness that they thought they were their own persons, but really they're still living out of the paradigms with the genetics included, that they inherited from their parents and their siblings. And transferring that to this adult relationship, which they probably thought was by choice. But even that, it's it's somewhat instinctual, but even that is innately then already pre-programmed into you. Your inclination Attraction to others is based on your love experiences when you were a child with your parents, with your siblings, with your peers, with your cohorts, with your extended family, all of those examples that I gave earlier on in today's podcast. But once you begin to look at that, and once more, it could seem pretty complex and hard to get a handle on it. It just comes down to this. You get to define it. You've just lost sight of the fact or maybe never really got to the level of awareness or insight sufficient to, in a strategic way, which psychological counseling affords, make some modifications and changes. Are you going to change it wholesale? Probably not. Because it'd be almost like erasing all the database and having to reprogram it. Aren't we glad they're apps? Aren't we glad others have already done that for us? There was a time when you had to program or at least configure 
your hard drives. <laughs> You'd get a computer, and then you became IT. In a way that IT probably isn't even IT today. And then <laughs> you could hopefully find an app or put an app on it. You would have to start all over again if you erased all of that. If you so-called, as we used to call it, nuked your computer. That's not very elegant or efficacious. And certainly there'd be a lot of... I don't know, potential grief, loss, they go with that. There's nothing wrong with being part of a social system. There's nothing wrong with heritage. There's nothing wrong with culture. It is who you are. And there's, again, even as personality, a bit of stability that goes with that. Others would not maybe agree with the new you. There's just a lot of peril and maybe something that could not even successfully be accomplished. So rather than look at it as a total nuke job, as I've ended up describing it, um, let's just be strategic. And your psychological counselor, psychotherapist, is going to help you figure out how you want to make modifications. But the first thing we need to realize is you've already been programmed and there's going to be an element of deprogramming and it can't be wholesale and you can't really expect the other person to change entirely either but with concerted effort you can tweak it a bit you can calibrate it not only a bit but a good deal and you can eliminate those things that as I also mentioned a little earlier in the podcast are adaptive from things that are obviously maladaptive or maybe not as adaptive in terms of your social learning and even so your genetics. There's nothing wrong with compensation as long as everybody agrees upon it and it doesn't wear anyone particularly out. You're not worn out by overcompensating and the other person not doing any of it. That's the calibration effect. But that's what we're good at, psychological counselors. We've studied it. We've gone to school. We've learned these things. There is education and knowledge as well as, depending on the number of years that your psychotherapist has been in practice, they've had plenty of opportunities to experiment a bit with it, their role in it, as they've helped other people along the way. But you can count on a bit of then inference or with that then intuition from all of those experiences that psychological counselors can bring to the table that you don't have (laughs) because it's not your job. And it probably isn't really all that good for you to psychoanalyze one another in that kind of situation. Leave that to the experts. Take the pressure off of you. Let them guide you, lead you, direct you by what they've learned to be more the normal developmental course or how all of this stuff comes together in this way of identity, formation of self, as well as maybe though you're not quite to the point of seeing it all blow up, they know what that looks like because they've been exposed to it, the psychological counselor, in various stages of it blowing up. Some 
couples come in and it's a little earlier, some in the middle, and unfortunately some come far too late, not only at the end, but when you can't do anything to fix it. They have that perspective and can put those things together because of the objectivity and that perspective in a way that you can't. They can help you make changes now or point out, if you keep doing this, I've seen it (laughs) turn out not so good. But if you trust them, you can also then mutually participate. Nobody has to tell the other what to do except to communicate preferences. But being able to work through that and allow the psychotherapist, the psychological counselor to take that lead role really allows Mika and Nilu, or you and your significant other, partner, husband, wife, to do that together, which then allows the experience to be much more relatable, less adversarial, less one against the other. It's the art of negotiation. (laughs) It's it's, It's also been said the art of the deal. But it's a fair one, it's a balanced one, it's equitable, and it's according to what we know is the highest order of relationship based on research. Social psychology has been around for a long time. Even more, individual psychology has been around longer. We know there's been plenty of research in all these theories. We know what we believe to be truth, what we believe to be real, (laughs) what the facts are and how we put them together. And though there'll be always some growth in that, there'll always be another way to look at it. The facts don't change, but that's also continuity. We have the benefit of empiricism, scientific research and methodology, as then to give us evidence-based interventions. We know how to do this stuff. But if you can trust us, you can go through that together and share in the growth even more than if you're having to do not only the sharing, but continue to be in some position of challenge. (laughs) Let us do all the challenging. But if you can do that, then you can work through it. And once again, as the article pointed out, it takes some work, but it's not impossible. And to know, maybe, that what you're doing now as an adult is really only a rehash or repeat or some restyling a bit of old material that you learned in childhood and adolescence, that's kind of inspirational too. Isn't that what we want? Some personal growth and development, some collaborative growth and development, Even so, somebody to look at us and say, I've seen a lot of growth in you. And you to say, oh, no, I've seen a lot of growth in you. And validate all of that besides me, your psychological counselor. And maybe a few other close friends, significant others whom you aren't married to or partnering with or having whatever kind of relationship, as you might call it, that is inclined to look a lot like either partnering or marriage. It helps. It helps to get outside of yourself 
It helps to get the perspective of another. It helps to grow together. It helps to grow as an individual. That, in part, if not larger measure, is what psychological counseling is all about. And why then wouldn't you reach out to somebody? Of course, there's a lot of options. You can certainly look for local resources if you're more inclined to want to do that face-to-face. And there's always going to be somewhat of a geographical sort of barrier or factor in who you see unless resources are unlimited. And you can go anywhere you want to, anytime you want to. You can do it online, but even then, there's time zones to consider. But, as much that might represent some geography, it's less restrictive. Uh, Virtual interventions, you can find a directory of providers, both local, geographically so, or virtual, at the Psychology Today platform webpage, where they have put together a composite of vetted, licensed, certified providers who otherwise could any one of them likely help. You may have particular preferences. Some may be more inclined to speak culturally in certain terms than others. But nonetheless, the database should all be, you should have at least some confidence, that good stuff of science in empirical study and research. Look there. (laughs) Should you want to reach out to me, you can find me at thewordhouse.com. You can email me at drmdclay at thewordhouse.com. You can call me at 304-523-WORD-9673. You can also come back for the next edition of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We drop the podcast weekly and uh, would love to have you back as a routine, regular listener. Out of all those options, hopefully, though, we'll get a chance to connect again. You'll get a chance to connect with somebody who can help you, if not me, but that you will be able, even in that scenario, find your way back to the podcast. But until we get a chance to do this again, I want to wish you sincerely not only the best of good mind health, mental health, but also just in general good health and the best quality as well as quantity of life available. Thanks.